I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore thought leadership and great writing with America's leading authors. Today, I interviewed best-selling novelist Scott Turow, author of the new legal thriller The Last Trial, which came out May 12, 2020. And we talked about not only his new novel, but also his writing process. We did the interview in front of a large Zoom audience on June 10th. Enjoy. For all of you who are on this call, uh, my name is Talmadge Boston, and uh, this uh, program is uh, co-sponsored by the Lock Lord firm, uh, led by Liz Langmeyers, my dear friend, uh, who was instrumental in bringing this together. And then uh, Liz was nice enough to allow my law firm, the Shackelford Law Firm, to also be part of it with our guests. And uh, Scott Giroux had planned on coming to Dallas as well as all over the place in connection with his new, wonderful, uh, best-selling novel, The Last Trial. But obviously the virus crisis has changed all those plans. But uh, we're hopeful that today will be a a fantastic experience because you are getting to hear it straight out of Scott's mouth. Uh, you're all on this call because you already know who Scott is, but just briefly, uh, this is his uh, 11th novel. Uh, he has uh, his novels and, and, and he's written two nonfictions. Almost all of us have probably read 1L. have sold over 30 million copies. Uh, they've been translated into 40 languages. Many of them have been made into feature films and and television uh, series. Uh, he's written extensively for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vanity Fair, New Yorker, the Atlantic. And what makes him stand out, uh, other than merely being a fantastic writer, is he really brought the legal thr thriller in the new era to the forefront with presumed innocence. And so uh, that really kind of kicked everything off. Within a year, John Grisham had written his first and so on. So uh, Scott, on behalf of, of lawyers everywhere for over 30 years now, we appreciate your contribution to the to the literature of our profession. Thank you. Uh, so as, as I mentioned, uh, many who are uh, on this call are, are lawyers, and since lawyers do a lot of writing ourselves, I'm sure when many picked up Presumed Innocent and your subsequent uh, novels, we, many probably thought, man, I could do that. Yeah. And, then, and then we read Presumed Innocence and said, no, I could never do that. So your, your plots and your characters are deep and they're complicated. So for the benefit of, of all these would-be Scotch Rose, explain your, <laughs> explain your process for, for how you go about outlining your novels before you begin the actual writing of them. Well, uh, first, uh, thank you, Talmadge, and thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth and Locke Lord. I'm happy to be here. Um, and I have to say your question, Talmadge, um, reminds me of what I regarded as the prototypical Harvard Law School experience, which was when my first book, 1L, uh, came out. It, 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 it sort of entered the literary firmament to an adoring review from Christopher Lehmanhaupt, who was the daily book critic at the New York Times. And I remember standing in Harkness Commons, which was the, the student union uh, at Harvard Law School, and listening to a couple of my classmates read this review and say, 
oh, I should have done that. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I, 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 I just, uh, I, I didn't mind the self-confidence, but, you know, I had spent five years uh, associated with the Stanford writing program after college, before I'd gone to law school. And I, I thought I had had some training to do this and it wasn't quite automatic. Uh, but in answer to your question, um, the elaborateness of my plots in particular probably is due to the fact that I don't plan well enough. And when I am in the stage with a book, uh, I kind of get up every morning, the stage that I am now with the book that I'm working on. And uh, I will write whatever strikes me. And uh, I do that because there's a kind of uh, energy to it um, rather than the discipline uh, that I've never been very good at of going from point A to point B to point C. So, uh, you know, I, to, this morning I was writing uh, an interview between lawyer and client, uh, which is, of course, a critical moment in the book. And then some observations, uh, because long before our current, current events, I was planning to write about uh, police officers some observations about police culture. And uh, I just, I wrote those things because that's what I wanted to write today. Uh, well, once I've done all of that uh, for about a year, I've got a bunch of uh, scenes and vignettes and descriptions of people and that, that I think are good, but then I've got to figure out how to tie it all together. And very often the plot will become extremely involved in order to get from, you know, that scene over there that I like to the scene over here where I want to end up. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, just by nature, I think I, I tend to the complicated. I remember one of my supervisors when I was in the U S attorney's office and he read a prosecution memo of mine. And he said, he says, Turo, why the heck do you have to make everything so complicated? You're gonna, you have to explain this to, you know, to 12 ordinary folks off the street, you know. Can't you think about this in a simpler way to start with? Well, the, the, the beauty of writing a, a courtroom thriller is, is obviously at the end of the trial, you have the closing argument. And so the closing argument really gives you the opportunity to weave uh, the substantial majority of your plot into it. So I was just curious about your timing on writing uh, the closing argument in, in the context of uh, whether you do that first and then you've kind of figured out your plot and can, can organize it, or do you do it at the end to kind of summarize your plot? What, what's your timing on that? Um, well, all I can talk about is the last trial um, because uh, <laughs> Most of, but most of the other trials in my novels have never gone to verdict. So um, the, uh, but the, the trial in the last trial does. Uh, and I, sometimes I save things for myself. And Sandy Stern's closing argument in the last trial was something that I was saving. So, and just as Stern does, you know, I was writing down little scraps of ideas all the way along putting them in a file called closing. Uh, but, uh, you know, I waited till I was near the end 
uh, of the first draft to write that. And yes, of course, you're, you're correct. Uh, you get to drag in all the other scenes that you've written before that. And uh, it would have been very difficult for me to do because I didn't know what was going to happen on the cross-examination of these witnesses. So I could have done it before that anyhow. Okay. Well, besides your plot, uh, your characters, uh, especially in the courtroom, have a major dramatic flair. Uh, in fact, before we started this uh, big session, you said uh, the courtroom and the trial, the only thing comparable in the way of stress that you could think of was directing a movie. Yeah. Uh, so, so as you're writing and as you're creating these characters, do you visualize them as if they were on a stage or in a movie? Yeah, I, um, for whatever reason, um, you know, my imagination is uh, very, I don't know how to pronounce the word, eidetic, but it's, it's image driven. Um, and so I see before me the scene that I am writing about. Like I talked about an interview with a client. I could see the sort of uh, conference room that uh, the three characters were in. Now, I haven't bothered to describe it yet, uh, but I see it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I could tell you what color the, the walls are as we sit here. And uh, I don't know if other <clears throat> novelists are the same. Uh, and it's not a complete picture. I can't tell you about the filing cabinet in the corner, but um, I see a lot of it. And what I choose to describe is, um, is what I think the neat reader needs to see. Yeah, to help give your characters some extra pizzazz, you often paint your word pictures with metaphors. For example, the assistant prosecutor in the courtroom types on his laptop like a concert pianist. When the first day ends in this highly publicized trial, the TV cameramen charge like rhinos to get their close-ups. And as Sandy prepares to start his last trial, anxiety was a rodent gnawing at his heart. Where do those ideas of comparison come from? Um, that is just the way I'm wired. <clears throat> and um, I could espouse all kinds of theories about this, that uh, some, uh, some uh, scientists believe that the purpose of sleep is to concatenate, that is to tie together our memories. And um, therefore what's going on in dreaming is really just a process of comparison. Uh, and, and I don't know if that's true, but I will say when I am in the flow state of writing uh, that those comparisons, the metaphors, the similes, uh, they just happen naturally. Uh, and that, um, you know, for me being on trial and the moments of intense anxiety I've sometimes felt, just felt like there was some, you know, small voracious creature eating at me. And, uh, so it's just natural to phrase it that way. Mm -hmm. Now, you say uh, early in the book that 85-year-old Sandy Stern, your main character, has a, quote, consuming faith in the law 
that for him rivaled what many feel for religion. But his daughter and co-counsel Marta, who's in her late 50s, says she does not share her dad's faith in the law. So Scott, you've been a practicing lawyer yourself for over 40 years. Is having that type of all-consuming faith in the law a generational view that's embraced by older lawyers but rejected by younger ones? I, I don't think so, Talmadge. I, I, if, if you were to ask me as their creators uh, how I understood Stern and his daughter, Martin, um, Stern practiced law because of, uh, you know, his faith in its ability to rationalize the little bit of human experience that humans can control. Whereas Marta practiced law um, in large part because she loved her father and, you know, wants to be around him every day and uh, found it incredibly fulfilling uh, to work in a profession that mattered to him. Uh, but as she got into her late 50s, having been a very good lawyer, um, you know, one of the, the scenes that surprised me when I was in the early stages of writing The Last Trial was when uh, Marta comes in and uh, Stern is about to make this big announcement to his daughter. And uh, she says, well, you know, wait a minute, I got to tell you something. Uh, we're going to retire. My husband and I, we're going to retire. And this, this just stuns Stern because he's always thought uh, without much thought that he was going to be able to leave this little empire to his daughter. And, uh, and she says, I've had enough of this. Uh, so, uh, and I, you know, look, I've seen a lot of lawyers that uh, I thought were great lawyers just decide to hang it up early. Uh, but I, I will say that most of the lawyers that I know who have been happy practicing law have been um, at, at some emotional level really committed to the project of the law, that they really do believe that the law um, overall helps make the world more just uh, and uh, certainly doesn't solve all problems, but that uh, those of us who've been lucky enough to practice are making our, all, our own small contribution to a more rational and fairer world. Now, writing novels often requires serious research. The last trial deals with a new drug that provides a cure for lung cancer, though it has fatal side effects for at least some people. So what kind of research did you do to be able to write authoritatively about the drug, cancer, and the FDA approval of the drug? Yeah. Um, you know, years ago, I did a panel in Chicago with the late Robert Parker, and somebody was praising his research, and Parker laughed and said, oh, I'm just a good typist. Uh, and, and to some extent, uh, you know, the, the, the novelist, or at least this novelist, uh, views his task like the uh, high school math teacher who's never taught math before. And, you know, in order to be good at it, you've got to be one lesson ahead of the students. Um, so, um, and I, I, I don't pretend to have, uh, complete knowledge of cancer research, uh, or the FDA, um, clinical trial process. Uh, 
but I learned enough about it that I thought I could be convincing. The, and what you need to learn is, especially when you're coming at something as involved as uh, our system for testing new medications, uh, you have to understand it well enough uh, not only that you get it yourself, but also that you can simplify it enough uh, to present it with some accuracy to a popular audience. So I spent a lot of time, especially on the, uh, the FDA stuff, um, because uh, I knew next to nothing about it. And as I have sometimes said, uh, it, when you really get into the rigmarole of, of drug regulation and clinical trials, it is the most dense and opaque set of rules that I have encountered in my many years of practicing law to the extent that I sometimes say it makes, you know, the, the internal revenue revenue code code read like a nursery rhyme it's uh, it's just it's very very complex now one of the many special features uh, for me in your novels is how you often weave psychology and philosophy into them for example as sandy stern stops himself early in the trial and thinks about just how much he wants to win you insert the line quote winning is like sex the spirit inevitably craves the next occasion, close quote. Where do parallel thoughts like that come from? Um, you know, I, I've always, uh, I've always marveled that when, you know, when it, as, as, and I think actually in uh, my last novel testimony I made a similar observation, which is that, you know, you can go to the Grand Canyon and say, I've seen the Grand Canyon, but somehow, when it comes to sex, people are not inclined to say, but I've been there and that's enough. So, uh, and it's, uh, we, we all understand why that is. And, uh, you know, it's the survival of the species depends on that craving. But, uh, and, and it turns out that, you know, there are, there are other things like that. Although, I, I think Stern and I are a little bit different. The last case I tried was about eight and a half years ago. And it was a criminal defense case. Uh, and as doesn't happen very often, we won. Uh, and my client, a physician, who I thought from the beginning had been wrongly accused, walked out of the courtroom, a free man. And a little voice went on inside my head and said, okay, you know, I don't think you need to do this again. Um, so uh, maybe Stern and I are not exactly alike. Well, here's another one, quote, in truth, the only thing we can do when it comes to understanding the inner life of others is guess. Dunn had declared that no person is an island. He had it exactly wrong. We all are. So Scott, is having the chance to express deep thoughts like that, what Henry Longfellow called the stretching out and grappling with men's minds, which you weave into all your books, is that your favorite part of writing a novel? Um, I don't think it's my favorite part, but um, I, yeah, I mean, I do uh, enjoy uh, being able to have uh, people hold still while I philosophize. And, uh, you know, I, I could 
say the same kind of thing to my uh, children and grandchildren around the dinner table, but I know the way their eyes glaze over quickly. So, uh, you know, in the, in the course of the novel, uh, you know, people don't know where the next sentence is going, so they've got to hear you out. And, uh, and I, I do, um, you know, I, I do enjoy making those observations, uh, especially when they go to illuminate uh, important moods in the character's life. Mm-hmm. Now, early in the trial, Sandy Stern violates a judge's ruling by talking to the jury about a subject that the judge has held in her pretrial rulings could not be said in the jury's presence. And this absolutely shocks Sandy's daughter, Marta, because everybody knows trial lawyers just do not do that. And Stern recognizes that because of his age, his feeling for the rules has failed. And a few pages later, he appears to believe that his thoughts on what the jury should hear should have control over what the judge thinks. So in your legal career, have you ever seen things like that happen with older lawyers? Well, I I know it certainly happened to me as a younger lawyer. And uh, I I remember one of the most embarrassing moments I ever had in court was um, I I asked a question of uh, a witness that involved him um, explaining that another person had been represented by the same law firm as the defendant. And uh, by the time the judge asked me to explain it for the record the next day, because he'd allowed the question, I had forgotten why I'd asked the question. Uh, And I sort of stood there. uh, I, I couldn't remember. And the judge struck my question from the day before. And then, of course, you know, with a few hours thought, uh, I remembered what the justification was and uh, corrected myself, even though the the evidence was no longer part of the record. So uh, we all have moments during trial where, um, you know, the sheer press of events is such that, um, you know, we haven't got it all at our fingertips. But um, Stern... Um, Stern is, uh, is meant to be a bit overwhelmed starting this, his last big case. And uh, so, and now I am going to have to beg uh, about five seconds indulgence because the dog wants to leave the room. And uh, if I don't, yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right, Doug, come here. Doug, come. Come. Okay. Apologies. We're done with the golden retriever. Okay. We now know that you have on this flashy pink shirt, this super cool sports coat and shorts. And, and shorts, right. So right. feel a lot better the, about that. The advantages of the internet era. Right. Now, for another intriguing aspect of Sandy Stern, you say that there's a part of him that actually enjoys being around criminals because they're very creative, they're audacious. Has, it, has that been your experience that, that's true of most criminal defense lawyers, that they actually enjoy being around criminals? Short answer to that. Absolutely. Um, and it's also true 
of quite a few police officers. Um, but, um, you know, the nature of being a cop means you've got to be a lot more judgmental uh, than, than the defense lawyer. But, uh, you know, you will see in the eye of many defense lawyers as they talk about their clients a little twinkle uh, as if to say, well, doggone it, but isn't this son of a gun clever uh, to have, you know, to have figured this out? Um, and uh, I, I, do, I do think that's a commonplace of that part of the profession and people, um, you know, who as Stern thinks about himself don't really have the courage uh, or, um, you know, the kind of lax morals that would allow them to be a criminal, but there is a little bit of admiration and a, a, a wish that, well, I could break the rules uh, just as, you know, with, with, with the same kind of freedom. Well, the criminal defendant in the last trial is Dr. Carol Pafko, uh, who really, he, he's won a Nobel Prize. Uh, he's uh, he's uh, amorous uh, and unfaithful. Uh, he has, you know, bad relations with his family. Uh, he's, he's got all kinds of different positive and negative dimensions to him. Talk about how you went about creating that character. Um, you know, you can see from the way I'm pausing that I don't have a specific recollection of exactly where Carol came from. Um, I knew if, can I give a long winded answer here? Tell, tell Yeah, me. I'd love a long winded answer. All right. So I'm sure our audience would too. Um, when I wrote Innocent, which was a novel I published about uh, a decade ago, Sandy Stern was defending, uh, his erstwhile client, Rusty Savage yet again. And Stern for reasons that, um, I, I couldn't fathom at the time had advanced cancer. And a lot of uh, people who followed Stern through my novels wrote after reading Innocent and said, oh, please don't say that Sandy Stern is going to die. And uh, I said to my, I said instinctively, no, 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 Sandy Stern's not going to die right now. But by the time I got around to writing my last novel, testimony where Stern passes by in the background in a single paragraph, I did start saying to myself, well, how is it that this guy has lived so long with, you know, advanced metastatic, you know, non-small cell lung cancer? How he's, he's defying the odds. And then I thought, well, there must be some new therapy that he's, that he's on. Uh, we all know that, you know, thank the Lord, there are a lot of great new cancer treatments coming along with great frequency. So maybe he's on one of these. Um, and uh, then I started to say, well, how come he's on it uh, and other people aren't? And uh, eventually, of course, I decided that, you know, it must be that a friend of his uh, was uh, an ex experimental cancer researcher. And that's where Carol Pafko began uh, to come from. Uh, and as I started to think about the tie between them, I decided Pafko well must have been born in Argentina, Argentina just like Stern, which was uh, allowed me, of course, to get into um, 
something that Stern has reflected on whenever he's had the center stage, which is the experience of being an immigrant. Uh, and But I didn't want Pafco to represent the, exactly the same segment of the Argentine uh, diaspora. So he was of, uh, you know, Slavic origin. Uh, so it was a, a process of, of accretion. And of course, as I began to think about, well, what kind of crime could this guy have committed? He's this great Nobel Prize winning revered scientist. And why would he have committed this crime? Uh, or why would that at least be plausible? Um, you know, his, his character began to come together for me. And uh, it, as I said, um, you know, whether your client is innocent, which is a rarity, um, or, or guilty, generally speaking, as a defense lawyer, even with the clients who haven't, um, haven't done what they're accused of, very often you can see what it was in their nature that got them into the, this, this problem. And that's even true sometime with white collar defendants. So, um, you know, in, in, in Pafko's case, he's charming, uh, a wonderful rock on tour, very, very brilliant, but also kind of a blowhard. And, um, and so these characteristics began to accrete. Uh, and without giving away too much, uh, he's accused of fraud. And uh, in some ways, he is a fraud. Well, now, um, particularly with Sandy Stern, when we talk about, quote, the law, uh, much of your book, you're writing about the law very favorably uh, from how Sandy Stern views his duty to the law as being greater than his duty to individual clients and how it's, quote, humanity sanctuary where we retreat from unreason and why, quote, humans need the law. Well, we've heard a lot in the last two weeks since George Floyd's death in Minneapolis about law and order. And in particular, there's now a movement by some to defund police forces. So in June 2020, do you think we need more law and order or less? Well, uh, you know, one advantage of having practiced criminal law for 40 years is that um, I have, um, I think, a little more nuanced understanding um, than perhaps people who are just coming to all of these subjects for the first time. Uh, I was a prosecutor and worked with police. I prosecuted police. I prosecuted civil rights cases, which are very hard cases. Uh, I defended cops. Uh, I investigated uh, a police department um, as a special prosecutor after I had left the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, I represented um, the Labor Council of the Fraternal Order of Police in Illinois. So I think I've seen a lot of this. And of course, I've represented a lot of poor people pro bono over the years. Um, goes without saying there are a lot more good cops than bad cops, a lot more. Um, but the reality that, um, and, and for sometimes for understandable reasons, that, that, that 
that cops are inclined um, to, to deal, especially with poor defendants who are often um, very mouthy. Um, they're inclined to deal with them harshly. And um, every single one of these cases that has come up in the last few years is slightly different on its facts. Uh, and uh, some of them turn out to be much different than initially perceived. But um, there, you can't look at the video of George Floyd uh, and think anything other than uh, there is something very, very wrong with that picture. Uh, and it is hard to imagine, frankly. It's not impossible, uh, but it is hard to imagine that going on uh, if it was a young uh, white man laying on the pavement. And, uh, and, and, and that is, frankly, faithful uh, to a problem that exists in this country. Police officers take their jobs knowing that they are not going to be arresting nuns very often. Uh, and yet they still let themselves get riled um, by um, the sort of routine disrespect that uh, defendants pose. And I always go back to NYPD Blue where Andy Sipowitz, the New York detective, uh, quite frequently reached across the interrogation table and gave the guy on the other side of the table a good smack when he was being uncooperative. And frankly, the American viewing public understood that. And there wasn't a, uh, there wasn't a, a big movement to take Sipowitz off TV. Um, but what happened on the streets of Minneapolis was not one good smack. Uh, that was a summary execution. Uh, and because it encapsulates so many of these problems, um, including the incredible disparities that remain in this country between poor African-Americans and everybody else, um, it, it's, a, it's a pivotal moment. And uh, I certainly have believed for a long time that there have to be changes in the way police go about their jobs. Uh, and it has to bear in mind that this is a difficult, dangerous job. Um, being a cop was once described to me by one of my clients as um, a life uh, of extended boredom relieved by moments of absolute terror. Uh, and um, it, it, it's a moment of stress for a cop as well um, when they're called upon to deal with a defendant, especially one who's somewhat unruly. Uh, I understand it, but um, we have got to do much better as a country. I'm gonna do something I've never done in an interview, but I'm gonna suggest, Scott, based on everything you just said with your unbelievable experience regarding uh, the many different ways you've dealt with policemen, I'm gonna encourage you to write an op-ed piece on your thoughts on the idea of whether it makes sense for anybody to defund police. I, I think your voice could be unique and, and would certainly, whatever your perspectives on that subject would be, I think would be uh, worthily uh, entitled to a lot of attention. So I'm just throwing that out there amidst your bu busy schedule. I think you've got some 
very important thought thoughts that I think a lot of people would be interested in hearing. Yeah, just just in response to that one issue, um, Talmadge. Look, we we can't run our society without a police force. So, um, and and the reality is, a lot of this military equipment that police forces own has been provided to them through the grace of the federal government and the LEAA, the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration. Um, so, I, I don't personally see defunding as an answer, except in one regard. Uh, and the, the, the truth is that a lot of the difficulty in curbing excessive police behavior has come from the police unions. And um, places like Minneapolis, where they just say, to hell with it, we're going to start again um, from scratch, is principally, I think, a response to the intransigence of the unions and their insistence. Uh, frankly, since I'm being really frank, sometimes reminiscent of the teachers' unions, that we're going to defend every cop, even if we know, even if we know she or he is a bad cop. Just like we're going to defend every teacher, even if we know uh, she or he is a bad teacher, uh, and and that's part of what breeds this um, this. Um, desire to sort of start from scratch with police departments. Mm -hmm. Now, many of your novels, and certainly in The Last Trial, go deep into all aspects of juries, their strengths and weaknesses, their interplay with lawyers, witnesses, and the judge. You say on page 300 that, quote, like all trial lawyers, Stern has mixed feelings about juries. On one hand, he venerates their role as fundamental to, fundamental to liberty, yet back in the jury room, they will sometimes construct a reality that bears little resemblance to what they've heard. And of course, the composition of a jury is hard to predict. Sandy Stern notes that, quote, a stupid jury is a prosecution jury, which is why he's always appealing to the juror's intelligence. So Scott, if you are a criminal defendant on trial in 2020, and the facts of your case were close as to whether the evidence proved your uh, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, how confident would you be in having a jury determine your fate? Well, I'm, that, that statement about mixed feelings about juries is certainly uh, true of, of me. And um, I remember as a prosecutor, in federal court, we weren't usually allowed to talk to the jurors, but now and then judges permitted it. And uh, I can remember more than one occasion when I was horrified by, um, you know, the details that they had seized upon in order to get consensus among the 12 people, which frankly had nothing to do with the case. I remember one time they just made something up that neither side had offered in evidence. Um, you know, if the facts were really close, depending on the judge, I might be inclined to take a bench trial. Um, you know, because with, with a jury, um, they have a very hard time setting aside what they really walked into the courtroom with. And of course, um, for the defendant, uh, most jurors come in there, whether they'll admit it or not, believing that, you know, there aren't a lot of innocent people accused of crimes. So that guy over there, 
you know, must be guilty. Um, you know, I, I remember talking to a very close friend who <laughs> with little hesitation, and she was the wife of a, a former prosecutor. She says, I just looked at the suit the guy was wearing and I knew he was guilty. And uh, so, um, you know, I, I would say whether a jury's a good decision or not really depends on the facts of the case. Okay. Now, on your final pages of the book, Sandy Stern decides that, quote, he's at peace with the limitations of the law, that even perfect justice will not change who we are, and that the law is erected on many fictions. And perhaps the falsest one of all is that humans in the end are rational. What led you to these conclusions? Um, being 70 plus and watching how, um, watching how people behave. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, I, I always enjoy the free market economists to talk about, you know, rational social actors, but um, that can't explain, for example, how often people will vote against their economic interests because certain values are more important to them. Uh, and, uh, you know, we all, in the end, have a narrative that we have constructed internally about how we see the world. And we all want to believe that, uh, all of us. Uh, and it's, it's very hard to tear ourselves away from that. And uh, even if, frankly, it has little support in the, the facts, because we need the security uh, and the coherence that comes from having that view of the world. Uh, and so, uh, again, I think the law is an incredibly noble enterprise, in part because it tries to join people together and get them to say, well, let, let's agree on this much, that, you know, this is how we're going to prove things. Uh, and, you know, we're going to call witnesses and they're going to tell you what they saw. And then the lawyer on the other side is going to ask some questions. Uh, and, I, you know, it, it is truly a noble enterprise, but it will not change uh, the frequent irrationality of human beings. Well, as a special plus for those in our audience, uh, Scott has agreed to read a small passage from the last trial, uh, so you can actually uh, get it straight in his voice uh, in real time. So, Scott, why don't you talk about the passage, give us a little intro as to why you chose this passage uh, for this audience. Well, um, I, I don't, I mean, this is one of my favorite passages. Uh, and it is frankly reworked from some lines that appeared originally in the burden of proof. Uh, so it's, it's the second time through for some of these observations. But uh, I thought for an audience of lawyers in particular, um, that they might appreciate Stern's observations. And um, he's, he's basically explaining why it's been so difficult for him to give up the practice of law. Uh, and is it in a, he 
says that it's not, you know, just because he doesn't, you know, he wants to have someplace to go or because he needs the money. The reasons are more personal and complex for whatever the frequent frustrations of practicing law. The plain truth is that Mr. Alejandro Stern has adored it. The rushing about, the telephone calls, the small breaks of light in the tangle of egos and rules, his clients, his clients. For him, no siren song could be more enticing than an anguished call from someone in dire straits. In his early years, a hooligan in the precinct lockup, or as happens more typically these days, a business person with a federal agent at the door. He has always answered with the majestic calm of a superhero. Speak to no one. I shall be there momentarily. What was it? What was this mad devotion to people who were often scoundrels, hoping to avoid a punishment that even Stern knew they deserved, who balked at paying fees, who lied to him routinely, and who scorned him the moment a case was lost? They needed him needed him. These weak, injured, even buffoonish characters required the assistance of Mr. Alejandro Stern to make their way. Wow. <laughs> well, I'll tell everybody who has not yet uh, gotten this book that uh, uh, there's lots of <laughs> juicy stuff in there. Uh, we have a few minutes left for questions from the audience. If you have some, uh, click on the chat feature at the bottom of your screen and type it in. Uh, uh, Scott, uh, Liz Langmeyers, our wonderful uh, hostess from the Lock Lord firm, says, and this was early in the interview, she, uh, that sometimes uh, you were surprised by uh, the way a scene in the book plays out. And I, and I think you touched on this before. Maybe go a little deeper on, does that mean that the story evolves rather than is anticipated or planned in full uh, as you write? Well, I always regard it as one of the most sort of romantic things that novelists say that the characters take on a life of their own. Because, I mean, obviously they're, they're not sitting here in the room with 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 me as I write, um, but that's often how it feels. And uh, the example I used before, the Marta telling her father that she was going to retire, I had no idea as I started writing that scene that that was what she was going to say. And of course, I laughed out loud when I wrote it. And uh, those kinds of surprises just happen when, as we talked about before, Talmadge. You can envision exactly what's happening in front of you. Uh, and you become engaged with that scene. Um, and, you know, should I have anticipated that? I didn't. I didn't. I mean, isn't that the great thrill of, of writing? Is it when you sit down, whether it's with your fingers on the keys or with the pen in your hand, so often you really don't know what's going to come? Uh, I, I agree. I mean, it's that process of personal exploration that's going on while you're writing um, that I think, you know, all writers get such great pleasure from. 
Now, at the end of the book, of course, you've got these two wonderful characters, Sandy Stern and, and Carol Pafko. They're about the same age. They're both amazingly accomplished, recognized superstars in their respective fields. They're also, you know, lifelong, longtime friends. And yet at the end, Sandy is kind of trying to figure out, okay, how does my life stack up against his? Which is really the question I think most people, most thoughtful people, you know, how do I want to be regarded at the end of my life in terms of what I really accomplished? So uh, why don't you talk about that, the dynamics of kind of measuring one against the other as between those two characters, but also talk about yourself in terms of, as you say, you're, you're 70, you've, you've got children, you've got grandchildren, you've got this amazing career. Uh, in the end, uh, what do you want people to say about Scott Giroux? Um, well, I mean, I, I hope people would say he was a good person and he tried to live a good life. Um, and, you know, was a good dad and a good grandfather. Um, because like most people, you know, that's number one on my list. Um, Stern is dealing with the reality that lawyers, when they're honest, have to face, which is, you know, you have these big deal cases that command the headlines. But in point of fact, um, you know, those cases are gonna be replaced uh, in months or years uh, by other big deal cases that, that command the moment. Uh, and it's very rare for a lawyer, except perhaps a justice of the Supreme Court, to make contributions to the law that are gonna be remembered, um, you know, very long. I, I remember uh, Richard Posner, who's somebody I've gotten to know in the course of practice, Judge Posner, laughing at, at me when we were talking about the fact that the law is, is ephemeral. Uh, I've watched principles that I've fought for as a prosecutor uh, basically be outlawed by sub, you know, subsequent judicial decisions. Whereas, as he realizes, um, you know, discovering uh, what causes most cancers is a contribution that may be remembered 500 years from now. Uh, but, you know, as Stern ultimately says, you know, we live with no one more than ourselves. Uh, and you have to like the way you've lived your life if you're going to be satisfied with it, I think. Uh, and I've been, I've been a really lucky person, uh, you know, in most regards. Uh, and, you know, I didn't have many disadvantages, but whatever there were, I managed to overcome. Uh, and I've had an incredibly privileged life. Uh, great kids, great grandkids, great wife, um, and, you know, satisfaction in two professions where I've done well by my own lights. And, uh, you know, I think that's all we can do. Uh, we what contribution we're making in the long run will never be judged by ourselves, but by, by future generations. So you can only, you can only, you know, live your life in the moment. Now, uh, John Wiggins in the audience uh, wants to know, uh, what's your opinion on qualified immunity for police officers? Um, I think that's a pretty complicated subject. Uh, and, in general, do I think public officials, whether they're cops 
uh, or mayors or prosecutors uh, ought to be subject to liability for uh, what they do in the ordinary course of their duties. Uh, I don't. You can't, you can't run a government that way. Qualified immunity worked for me when I was a prosecutor and got sued by some crazy defendant. Um, I think the problem is there have to be limits somewhere. Um, it just can't be that you can kill a man on plain view uh, and bear no civil liability for it, uh, especially since you're going to face criminal liability. So uh, turning it back uh, for the most extreme cases wouldn't bother me. How you define them, of course, as we all know as lawyers, is, um, you know, that really is the devil that, that's, that's in the details. Uh, on that subject, I saw uh, yesterday or the day before some recognized, uh, respected person say that in the trial of the Minneapolis policeman who uh, appears to be have killed uh, George Floyd, that, that there's going to be some real difficulties getting that policeman convicted, uh, which I, I didn't read the article. But, but give us your assessment, kind of a preview in your own mind, knowing what you know about having watched the video, having read, I'm sure, a lot about it, maybe given some time, uh, TV commentary of your own. What does that trial look like uh, in, in Minneapolis? Maybe you have to move to a different venue just because yeah. everybody... Although I doubt there's a venue in the United States where uh, people haven't been exposed to a lot of publicity about this. Um, again, I tried these cases and they are hard cases to win. Um, I indicted a police officer for beating a young man with his baton so that there was a literally a wagon wheel pattern on this, this, this boy's back uh, from the bruising. And, uh, I, I wasn't even sure that I'd get the 13 out of the 23 grand jurors to vote for a true bill. Uh, and the case mistried twice. Uh, and then after I left the office, we'd made a deal that this cop would leave the force and he went back on his word. And so they had to try him again and he was finally acquitted. They're tough cases because people know what, what police officers face every day. Um, so you're, you're gonna start on going up that hill. The defense is going to put a lot of weight on what the actual cause of death was. Uh, and, you know, the media's coverage hasn't emphasized, but on the other fact, other side, they haven't hidden the fact that, that George Floyd was heavily intoxicated and probably on more than one substance. So, you know, did that, was that a contributing factor? you know, undoubtedly. Um, bad fact for Chauvin is this other police officer who is going to say, I asked him twice, shouldn't we turn this man over? And of course, the defendant is sitting there going, I can't breathe, you know, or the, the, the would-be defendant. Um, I don't see this case resulting in an acquittal. Um, will it be a conviction on lesser charges? Um, as I view this, because Chauvin pulled George Floyd out of a police car, he was already in a police car when Chauvin arrived. He was teaching George Floyd a lesson. Um, and so he was determined to use excessive force. 
um, did he, um, with malice of forethought, intend to kill George Floyd? Um, probably not, but he certainly wanted to hurt him and make a point. So uh, overall, I think he's going to be convicted. But um, I don't. I, I would expect the jury to bring in a verdict that's one degree less than what he's ultimately charged with. We have one more question on the floor. And this is uh, a seasoned lawyer uh, who said he uh, was a classmate of Richard Posner. Uh, and even though you did not write the screenplay for the movie, The Paper Chase, you did go to Harvard Law School. And so the question is, who actually was uh, the professor who John Hausman was supposed to be? He said it was rumored to be W. Barton Leach. I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. You know, um, again, uh, John J. Osborne, who wrote The Paper Chase, can answer that question. Um, but I, I do think that Kingsfield, the character, is really an amalgam of a lot of legendary Harvard Law School professors, including, you know, whoever it was that first said, told students in the 1930s, uh, as Liz and I were talking about before, look to your left, look to your right, one of you is not gonna be here by the end of the first term. So I don't think there was actually one professor that Kingsfield uh, was modeled on. By the time I got to Harvard Law School, people said it was Clark Bice, um, but I, I, don't, I don't know who it was. And uh, there have always been uh, and I, at Harvard, when I was there, it was planned that there would be one um, SOB in each section who would just grind the students down mercilessly. Uh, and uh, <laughs> different people played that, that role each year. All right. Well, Scott, we can't thank you enough. I hope everybody on this call uh, and many of you will, will be getting the books uh, but uh, everybody needs to get it. And uh, Father's Day is coming up. I, I assure you it will be a, a book that whoever receives will love. Uh, Scott, we just encourage you to keep writing as long as you can because we, we love your novels and uh, you've really given us some really great uh, enhancements uh, with uh, your remarks today. So thanks so much. How much thanks to thank you for just all the care that you've put into preparing for this and the attention you put paid to my work. I really appreciate it. And I've got to ask about the Wrigley Field scoreboard over your right shoulder, which I only noticed after we began. This is a clock. And unfortunately, I stuck it in my briefcase and the arms fell off. <laughs> and I'm going to take it and, and get it fixed. I realize you're a great Cubs fan, which means you and I are both suffering uh, with the prospect of no baseball in 2021. Yeah. Yeah. And down here, we've got this brand new ballpark with nobody to play in. Oh, wow. So uh, let, let's just keep our fingers crossed and hope that somehow, some way, the, the players' union and, the, and MLB and the owners can come together. Hope so. So it's, a, it's, a, it's not a summer without baseball. Amen. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you all for, for watching us. Scott Turow is as good a novelist as there is these days. With his complex plots, memorable characters, and head-snapping insights into the human condition. You can find Scott's terrific new novel, The Last Trial, wherever books are sold. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time... 
Remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.